Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word open before us this morning, and we pray for your Holy Spirit to inspire the words written, um, fill our hearts with knowledge of your truth, um, and a love for you, and a desire to gladly follow you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> All right, so I don't know if you've ever had the experience of talking to somebody about Jesus and having them get very angry. Uh, if you have, then you know how scary that can be. Uh, I've experienced it a couple of times. Uh, one of them was in London when I was a teenager. Uh, I was handing out little tracts on the street, little booklets about Christianity um, to, to strangers who were passing by on a busy London sidewalk. And uh, I gave one of these little booklets to a young man who was a few years older than me, and he was walking with a, a small group of friends. Uh, and this young man walked past me a few paces, looking at what I just handed him. And then he stopped in the street, and he turned around, and he shouted back to me, What is this? Uh, and I was pretty taken by surprise, and I sort of stuttered, um, it, it, It's a message of life. And he replied, It's a piece of paper. And he screwed it up, and he threw it down on the sidewalk, and he stormed away. Uh, and I was pretty shaken by that. <laughs> His anger scared me, and it, it took me quite a long time to recover. Uh, and that experience was so tiny compared to what Peter and John experienced in Acts 4 when they stood trial before the high priest and a bunch of other important religious dignitaries. But Peter and John show us why we should expect these kind of experiences and what we should do about them. So we're going to look at Acts 4 today. Uh, please turn there now. It's on page 911 of the Church Bibles, Acts chapter 4. And uh, we have 31 verses to cover today. Um, <clears throat> so, so far in the book of Acts, Jesus has left his disciples and, ascend and ascended and entered into heaven. And then the Holy Spirit has come down to the disciples and filled them with understanding and power. And the apostles, particularly Peter, have started to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and to heal people miraculously. So far in Acts, it's all been very exciting. But here in Acts chapter 4 is the first real sign of conflict. Here they start to get pushback from very powerful and important people. And this is what Jesus warned them would happen. When he said, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. And if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So Acts 4 verse 1 says, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. So remember, Peter and John had just healed a man who was lame from birth by commanding him to be healed in Jesus' name. And they did it just outside the temple in Jerusalem, the holiest and most important site in Judaism, the epicenter of Jewish worship. And then they brought the man into the temple and preached to thousands of Jewish worshippers that Jesus was their Messiah because he had been raised from the dead. And at the time, temple worship was controlled and governed by a group of Jewish leaders called the Sadducees. And you probably remember that they famously didn't believe in any resurrection of the dead. They vehemently disbelieved it. And they were ready to argue loudly with their brothers, the Pharisees, on this point. 
So Peter and John could hardly have made themselves less popular with the temple authorities than by proclaiming a man raised from the dead. It was like the taboo subject. So the Sadducees came to investigate with the priests and the captain of the temple. That's like the temple police. And Luke describes them as greatly annoyed. Now, Peter and John hadn't really done anything wrong. They hadn't broken any laws or hurt anyone, but they got a night in a jail cell nonetheless. And so this story, quite frankly, terrifies me. <laughs> I'm a rule keeper, and I try to keep my nose clean and stay out of trouble. And the idea of offending important people like this fills me with dread. So I find Peter and John remarkable in this story for their boldness. The next day they stood trial before a surprisingly elevated court, including the high priest and several members of his family. And that seems to me just a bit ludicrous. It's a bit of a massive overreaction. It's a bit like the Supreme Court gathering to try a teenager on a charge of loitering. It just seems like I'm a huge overreaction. <clears throat> and Peter seems bemused by the weirdness of his trial because he stands up in verse 8 and says, rulers and elders... If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, in other words, why are we standing trial for a good deed? The question they asked Peter was, by what power or what name did you do this? And that was the exact thing that he was explaining to the crowd when they came in to shut him up. If they'd been listening, they'd know the answer. But no matter, he'll explain it again. Verse 10, in the name and power of Jesus, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. So Peter gave them the truth, plain and simple. No attempt to mince words or spare their feelings or protect himself. Peter was extremely bold in the face of powerful men. And they were astonished, verse, verse 13. Certain realities immediately became apparent to all of them who were there. So first, that Peter and John were uneducated. They were unschooled in Jewish law or Greek rhetoric, but at the same time, they were nonetheless bold and confident in their knowledge of God and of his word. So therefore, it showed that they had been with Jesus. And the second thing was that Peter and John had performed a notable sign. Notice they say that, that's the word they use. They performed a notable sign in Jesus' name that the priests were unable to deny much as they might want to. And so these two realities placed side by side pointed to a simple and compelling conclusion for these priests that Jesus was a force to be reckoned with, that there was a new dog in town. Or, to state it more biblically, that God had bypassed their power structure and established a new king over them. The promised Messiah had come and they owed him their allegiance. That was the conclusion that was apparent to the high priests, but they were unwilling to face it. So they suppressed it. They opted to ignore it and cover up the evidence. Always a good sign of a healthy government. Step one, misuse of power. Verse 18, they called in Peter and John and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John's response in verse 19 was essentially to laugh at them. You tell us whether we should listen to you or to God on this one. And so with Peter and John refusing to play their little conspiracy game, the priests resorted to step two, which was barefaced threats. Verse 21, and when they had further threatened them, 
they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. All right, so this little trial in the temple was an epic fail for Annas and Caiaphas. It was an epic fail. It was a try to ride your bike up the slope and end up with a mud faceplant kind of fail because they pulled out their big sledgehammer to crack this tiny nut and they smashed it as hard as they could and the sledgehammer had broken. They ended up looking like great fools for the way they botched this trial. Corrupt, conniving officials who were outwitted and outsmarted and outplayed by two fishermen And so the priests were exposed for the spiritually destitute, power-grabbing demagogues they were. Peter and John, with no weapons and no threats, won the day by single-minded devotion to Jesus and to the truth. So that's the setup in verses 1 through 22 of Acts chapter 4. And obviously there's a whole lot more we could unpack in those verses, but we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. And I wanted to focus our attention on the end of our passage, verses 23 through 31. The followers of Jesus got together in prayer and worship, and they interpreted with the power of the Holy Spirit what had just happened to Peter and John. They looked at it through the lens of Psalm 2 in the Old Testament, and they realized that this was so much more than an isolated minor incident. Instead, they realized what they had just witnessed were the first shots in a global political war. A global political war. War because it's conflict over territory, political because it concerns the governing of nations, and global because it affects every single nation on earth. That's what the first disciples understood was going on. And God agreed with them. That's why he shook the place where they were praying. So what I want to do first, before we look back at Acts 4, is to start with Psalm 2, the part that they were reading when they interpreted what had happened. So let's turn back there now to Psalm 2. It's on page 448 in the Church Bible. Psalm 2. Psalm 2 begins, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. So the psalm is talking about the leaders of nations, right? It has a political focus. And it's the foreign nations, Gentile nations. Their kings and their rulers are raging and conspiring against God. Verse 2, against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the kings and rulers have a conception of God as a slave master who's keeping them chained up. And they want nothing more than to throw off his oppressive rule and be free of him. The Gentile nations are no friends to one another, but they're united in a common hatred of God. And that's enough for them to plot and scheme together. But God is entirely unthreatened by their scheming. He actually finds it funny. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He laughs them to scorn. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The decision about who will be king is already made. It's not up for debate. There's not going to be an election. He's been appointed by God to rule the earth, king of kings and lord of lords. Verse 7. 
I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The authority of God's chosen king is absolute. He is sovereign. The nations belong to him, even to the ends of the earth, and he can break them apart as easily as a potter smashes a bowl. So the rulers of nations have only one wise choice, and that's to fall in line with this king. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So here in Psalm 2, we see the cause of the global political war. It's actually not a war in the normal sense, but a mutiny. The earth properly belongs to God and to God's chosen king. But the rulers of the nations have conspired to rebel against that king and throw off his rightful rule. So if you've seen a lot of pirate movies, this is a classic mutiny. But their mutiny is feeble. It's doomed to fail. God didn't start this war, but he's sure going to finish it. So the message to Gentile kings is, kiss the sun and serve the Lord with fear or perish in the way. God doesn't mind the fact that there are human kings and rulers. He doesn't want to get rid of them all. Actually, he provides them and upholds them. But they're answerable to him. They must honor and serve him as king of kings or they'll perish. So that's the message of Psalm 2. Now let's flip forward again to Acts chapter 4, and that's back on page 912. We're back in Acts chapter 4. So after Peter and John's run-in with the Sadducees and the temple guards, they went back to their friends and reported what had happened, and the Holy Spirit showed them what it all meant. Verse 27, Jesus, by his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, became the anointed king of Psalm 2, the Son, the King of Kings, the Messiah. And then when the Holy Spirit came, he came to claim the territory on earth that Jesus had won and to announce that this territory had a new king now, both with words and with power. But when that message came, the existing rulers of the nations rejected it. They suppressed the truth. And in so doing, they fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm 2. And they began what I'm calling the global political war. So by this strong connection between Psalm 2 and Acts 4, we learn three important things about that global political war. Um, first, the war is asymmetrical. Second, the conclusion is certain. And third, the servants of God aren't soldiers. So first, the war is asymmetrical. This was already clear in Psalm 2, but we see it played out in practice in Acts 4. The war has two sides, right? It's God against human rulers, but they're not equal sides, not even close. Many other wars in human history have been unequal, asymmetrical, with one side much stronger than the other, but no war has ever been as asymmetrical as this war. The two sides can't even be compared for strength. The one who sits in heaven laughs. 
Peter and John were two fishermen. They had no social status, no political power, no money, no weapons, and no army. They had no education in the Old Testament studies or in Greek rhetoric, and yet they stood up in front of the high priest who had all those things, like the young King David standing before the giant Goliath. And Peter and John defeated him. They thrashed him. They shamed him. God could have enlisted much more powerful people to speak for him, but he didn't need to. Why not use the weak things of the world to shame the wise? God can leave the key to his armory hanging on its nail and give his legions of angel armies the afternoon off and not even get out of his chair and still defeat the pathetic mutiny of human kings. As the disciples say in verse 24, he is the sovereign Lord the all-powerful king. He reigns in unapproachable glory. So this war is painfully, embarrassingly asymmetrical. As the psalm says, why do the nations conspire? Who can even understand why they'd be so foolish? Now second, the conclusion is certain. And this leads on from the first point, but it deserves to be considered separately. The conclusion of this war is certain, not just because the sides are so asymmetrical, but also because God has foreknown and foredetermined the outcome. So here's what the disciples say in verse 27. Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel both Herod and Pontius Pilate, the half-Jewish king and the Roman governor, who hated each other, but who joined forces against Jesus. They conspired. And you remember that after the crucifixion of Jesus, they became friends for the first time. These enemies became friends. And that's exactly what Psalm 2 is talking about. The nations conspired against God's chosen king. But, verse 28, they conspired to do whatever God's hand and his plan had predestined to take place. They conspired to do what God wanted them to do, to do exactly what God had already decided needed to happen, to crucify his son, to pay the price for the sins of the world. That was God's plan first, before it was theirs. And so when they conspired against him and mutinied and plotted to kill him, the best plan they could come up with actually ended up serving God's own purposes. Their best shot in the game scored an own goal. How could evil ever win when its best moves are only self-defeating? The conclusion of this war is certain because evil defeats itself. And right now we need to know that the conclusion is certain. Because in our day, the global political war is still raging fiercely. Since those first shots fired in Acts chapter 4, things have gotten way, way worse. Today, most of the kings and rulers of this world are part of that Psalm 2 conspiracy. Most of them. The majority. And we know they are because in their countries there are restrictions on worshipping Jesus or even talking about the name of Jesus. So today, according to the Pew Research Group, 75% of the world's population currently lives in areas with severe religious restrictions. Not just some restrictions, but severe restrictions. And all of those religious restrictions target Christianity. All of them. 
Most countries will target Christianity along with other religions, but no country oppresses other religions and leaves Christianity alone. That doesn't happen. Christianity is almost always the primary target, and of course it is. Because it's really about the Son, the true King. It's Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. There's a group called Open Doors USA that tracks religious persecution around the world. And it reports that every month around the world, 322 Christians are killed for their faith. 214 churches and Christian properties are destroyed and 722 forms of violence are committed against Christians every month. Open Doors also ranks the countries that are most hostile to the Christian faith. Here's its current top 10 list from 10 down to 1. It has Eritrea at number 10, then Yemen, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Sudan, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Somalia, and the worst offender at the top of the list has been for several years is North Korea. So Kim Jong-un might not literally be at war, at least not yet. But he's a ringleader in the global political war against Jesus. He rages and conspires against his country's legitimate king. And while he holds sway, his people, for whom Jesus died, suffer abominably. In North Korea, the mention of the name of Jesus or the possession of a Bible is enough to get you arrested and imprisoned indefinitely in a forced labor camp. And our Lord weeps for those enslaved people, but he laughs at the mutiny. He laughs Kim Jong-un to scorn. The eternal leader will kiss the sun or he will perish in his way. He's just waiting his turn. Hundreds of other tyrants and despots before him have fallen, and his turn is coming. No one stands against Jesus for long. So in these dark days when evil seems to gain strength, we need to know that the outcome of this war is certain. But at the same time, we need to know what we are supposed to do. If we're the servants of God, what's our role in all this? So the third lesson from Acts 4 is that the servants of God aren't soldiers. Not in the normal sense of the word. Now, military language is sometimes used of Christians in the New Testament. You're probably immediately thinking of it. Like Paul telling the Galatians to put on the armor of God, or telling Timothy to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And we learn that there is an internal and spiritual battle for us to fight. But I want to be clear on this subject of national politics that we're not soldiers in any normal sense. So if you think about a war, typically in a war, the citizens of both countries that are involved are called on to be soldiers. The message goes out far and wide. If you're strong and able-bodied, then sign up, get trained, pick up your weapons and fight. What the country needs most right now are soldiers. But that's just not the way Jesus goes about winning the global political war. He doesn't save people so he can recruit them to his army to fight his cause. As we've already seen, he wins the war with no army at all, with no shots fired. He has legions of angel armies who could do the job in minutes, but he leaves them standing by. He lets his enemies serve his purposes for him. So it's not our job to be soldiers in this war. Terrible things have happened in church history when Christians have been confused on this point. Other religions and cults might have fanatics, zealots, who might even deserve to be called terrorists. 
who tried to take down God's enemies in a kind of guerrilla warfare. But that's repugnant to the way of Jesus. That's completely unchristian. That is to badly mistake our calling. Instead, the disciples in Acts 4 had it exactly right. Jesus enlists men and women into his kingdom, not as soldiers, but as witnesses. You might even say journalists. The job description is pretty close to a wartime journalist who reports what he sees and makes the truth known. So first, look at the way Peter and John interacted with Annas and Caiaphas. It was in no way violent. They made no threats. It's even respectful in verse 19 when they say, you be the judge. But the part they won't budge on is that they will not be silenced. They say in verse 20, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. You can imagine a zealous journalist saying the same kind of thing, right? You can't silence me. This is going to be on the front page. <laughs> then again in verse 29, when the followers of Jesus are praying together, they pray, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. That's their prayer. Not take away the threat, not help us defeat these enemies, not even spare our lives, but give us courage to keep speaking. They had a clear focus on what their job was, the job that Jesus had given them to do, to speak about what they had seen and heard. So they were a bit like wartime journalists. They traveled into dangerous places. They put themselves in the thick of the action so that they could report the truth as they saw it and heard it. And there's also a component of healing to their work, isn't there? So they're also a bit like the International Red Cross, going into war zones to take care of the injured on both sides. In verse 30, they pray for boldness, while you, God, stretch out your hand to heal. So they saw themselves as channels of God's healing, but he was the one doing the healing and the signs and the wonders, while their primary job was to speak his word. They saw their situation very clearly. They knew why Annas and Caiaphas were standing against them. It was because of Psalm 2, the start of the global political war, and they knew what they had to do about it, not to stand up and fight, but to stay faithful to their Lord and speak his word. And there was such approval for their prayer in heaven that the place where they were gathered was shaken. And God immediately answered their prayer. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So this morning, I want to make their prayer in verse 29 our prayer. We live in a world where the same war still rages rages fiercely. And all the time, even in this country, we face the pressure not to speak about Jesus, don't we? That pressure is all around us. Maybe it's written in some of the rules in your office. Maybe your workplace has put pressure on you not to talk about Jesus. Or maybe it's just part of the atmosphere at work. Will you be silenced? Maybe in your career path, there's an implicit threat that if you go public with your faith, you'll never get that promotion or that good position. Will you be silenced? Or maybe when you go to spend time with your extended family, there's pressure there not to talk about Jesus. Some sort of agreement that so long as you're quiet on this subject, we can have a nice family time together. Will you be silenced? Jesus says, you are my witnesses. You are my journalist. That's your job. He wants us to speak. Whatever else we do for him, we must never be silenced. 
And that doesn't mean speaking in a false or aggressive or condescending or annoying way. But like Peter and John, simply and frankly, honestly, from our hearts, about the things that we have seen and heard. That's what Jesus calls all of us to do. So let's determine together as a community that we will not be silenced. We won't be afraid. We're not going to give up. We're going to lean on the Holy Spirit for the courage we need. And let's join with those early Christians in their room-shaking prayer. They prayed, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus.